Our study today is titled, Trudging or Abounding. And before we finish, I think you will discover a new spring in your step. If you have access to a Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 through 58. If you're driving, simply keep your eyes on the road and we'll fill you in on the scripture. Let's join our study leader, Dave Wurtson, as he prays for guidance to help all of us rejoice in the resurrection. These bodies that come on the scene with so much promise and so much gift can grow old and they can be affected by disease. And Father, that's why we're so thankful for the word that we receive from the Apostle Paul, that this corruptible shall put on incorruption and this mortal shall put on immortality. And Father, I would ask you that as we examine 1 Corinthians 15 and as we close the chapter, that you would help us to have a profound understanding and that that living reality that Jesus Christ could break through the blue, even while we're speaking today, would grip our hearts and would cause us to have hope, to have confidence, to have joy. I pray, Father, that you would meet all the different needs most of all, we pray that over the next few moments that our hearts would be focused on the truth and that we would not just hear it intellectually, but that we would respond from our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'd like to open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we're going to be concluding Paul's classic on the resurrection. There's nothing more depressing, there's nothing more depressing then performing a task and finding out when you're all finished with that task that you accomplished nothing. In other words, it's kind of like being in the service and the drill sergeant says, I want you to dig this ditch over here. And so you work hard and you sweat and you get all the dirt out of a 10-foot hole, 6-foot wide and 6-foot long and 10 feet deep. And you go through all that labor and all that work and then he tells you now, I want you to dig another hole over here. And then you work digging that hole. And he says, I want you to take the, hole, the dirt from the first hole and put it in the second hole. And the dirt from the second hole you put in the first hole. That's bad news. That will depress you. The reality is that our kids leave high school and we get up and we give a big commencement address and we talk about all the holes there are to dig in this earth. In other words, you can go out and you can get a great career. You can make some money. You can build some houses. You can get involved in politics. And there's that great American dream that's out there. In other words, there's a whole lot of exciting holes that you can build. You get to be about 55 years old and maybe you've dug about five or six of those holes. And you begin to realize, hey, all that I'm doing is putting dirt from this hole and that hole and, and dirt from that hole and this hole. And it starts to be depressing. In fact, depression is one of the strongest emotions that's dragging people down in the USA today. Why? Because in a lot of other cultures, you have to just work hard to eat. You see, you lose yourself if you're hungry and you're working hard just to have a little food in your stomach. You don't have time to think about the fact, hey, my life doesn't really have a lot of meaning. Also, it's hard when your life only lasts to maybe the middle 30s. And that's the way it is in a lot of cultures. So they get faced with the emptiness because life is so fragile, many people die. In the U.S., we have a lifespan where you can count on living to be almost 80 now. And what we do is we tend to keep stalling off that sense of emptiness. 
that sense of meaninglessness. So we keep running after things. But sooner or later, at certain transitions in our life, maybe it's in high school, where you start to feel this deep emptiness. Life doesn't really have any meaning. Life doesn't add up. I've got a very deep-seated sense of nothingness inside of me. Maybe it happens during the second adolescence when you're about 40, when that, what they call the midlife crisis, and you begin to realize, hey, I can't run the 100-yard dash too quickly anymore, and my children are bigger than I am, and my body doesn't feel so great early in the morning, and so a guy, a guy can, can try to run back, and suddenly you'll see 40-year-old guys that are running about 16 miles a day and 20 miles a day, and they look fantastic. But they're wrestling inside, hey, I'm growing older. Women can do the same thing. What are we all wrestling with? We live in a world that's filled with emptiness. The Bible puts it this way, emptiness of emptiness, all is emptiness. Or the good King James, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Futility of futility, all is futility. Whatever way you want to translate it, there's no real meaning if you look at life just from the perspective of about 70 or 80 years. Now, we all know that. But I want to ask you, have you found something that you can really hope in, you can really put your confidence in, which transcends all of that? And the Apostle Paul, as he closes this classic on the resurrection, gives us the answer to that sense of emptiness. He answers the preacher of Ecclesiastes, and he tells us about the big change. He's going to tell us in 1 Corinthians 15 about the big change. He's going to tell us about the thrill of victory. I've just been talking to you about the agony of defeat. Paul's going to talk to us about the thrill of victory, and then he's going to close the passage by talking to us about escaping from emptiness. I want you to turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we're going to look at the conclusion of this chapter in verses 50 and following. You remember that we discussed verses 35 through 49. We talked about Paul's point, the analogy of a seed that's sowed in corruption, in dishonor. It's dying, it's fading away. And we had those two ugly, corroded bulbs, and I had them discuss one of the bulbs believed that they were going to become something brand new, and one of the bulbs said that was totally unrealistic. And then we concluded the service by having Jonathan walk in the back with that beautiful lily. And the point that we made was that when you look at life from the perspective of two bulbs, you never dream you could become a lily. It just seems incredible. And you could argue very realistically that, Charlie, you're just out to lunch by thinking you could ever be transformed like that. But we all know that bulbs do become lilies. And so it's no miracle for us but if you stop and think about it, it is a miracle. And what Paul is saying is that all of creation at Easter time is arguing the validity of the resurrection. That just as certainly as you plant these seeds into the ground and they die and they decay and the water comes in and deteriorates them, but then they burst forth with life, the shoots begin to come out of the ground and then beautiful flowers and beautiful harvests take place, Paul argues that that is the way the resurrection is going to be. And we're going to finish out the story about when we get transformed into beautiful, not lilies, but into beautiful, supernatural, divinely created sons and daughters of God. Look at verse 50. I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit 
the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. The Apostle Paul talks in verses 50 through 53 about the big, big change. I want you to look first of all at who participates in this change. I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be what? Changed. Now, how many of us are going to be changed? All of us. Now, who in the world is the all? Does this mean all human beings? In other words, all human beings on the planet. In other words, we live on the earth. There's 4 billion, 5 billion people on the earth. And everyone is dying, but we can be confident that all humanity is going to be changed and transformed and have this new glorious body. Who are the participants according to this passage? Can anybody tell me? Can anybody tell me why? Now, how many of the brothers are going to make it? All the brothers are going to make it. Are we going to include the sister in two? He doesn't say that. Okay. Okay. All the way through the book of Corinthians, you can count on the fact, sisterin, that when Paul uses the word brethren, he's using good Greek usage and it includes all of you. And that's a very important point that Bob makes. He did pick up on the key word. I speak to you, brethren. Now, I want you to stop and think about this. What kind of brethren have we learned about in the book of Corinthians? What kind of brethren have we been working with in the book of Corinthians? Are they good brethren? Are they brethren that don't ever have any trouble with sin? As we've been going through this book, the Apostle Paul starts out the book by talking about the fact that there's all kind of jealousy in this family. There's all kinds of, of party spirits and jealousy taking place between the parties. He goes on and talks about in chapter 5 about... Uh, one of the believers that was involved in terrible immorality. In chapter 6, he talks about believers. He goes further in talking about immorality, but he also talks about believers that are taking one another to court. In chapter 7, he talks about believers that are divorcing one another illegitimately. He goes on and talks about um, believers that have lost their belief in the resurrection in chapter 15. In other words, as you go through the book of Corinthians, you're dealing with a church that in a lot of ways, from a human standpoint, in shambles. And yet the Apostle Paul says, brethren, I think it's highly significant that the Apostle Paul can still call the Corinthians brothers. And that's a very important point in Paul's ministry. He never rejects the Corinthians as his family. It makes a big difference to relate to one another as family, even when we have to discipline, even when we have to correct, than it does to treat one another like enemies. And in God's family, we need to always remember that that brother-sister relationship is based upon the grace of God and God's gift to us, and so that we need to relate to one another as brothers, even when we need to correct. But what Paul is also telling us is that all this imperfection, all of this problem in the Corinthian church is not going to block what Jesus Christ is going to do when he comes back. So the participants in this big change are all believers, not a select group of believers, not a group of believers who have lived 
more holy lives and more spiritual lives, but based upon God's grace, they will all be changed. When will they be changed? They're going to be changed at the coming of the Lord. It says, I tell you a mystery. The idea in verse 51 is that this concept of the coming of the Lord to the earth or in the clouds to take believers to himself was not an idea, not a revelation that was shared in the Old Testament. Now, the Old Testament talks about a, a, a resurrection of the just. Daniel chapter 12 will talk about Daniel sleeping in the dust of the earth and waiting the time till the end, and then God will raise Daniel to his reward. And Daniel's able to go to his death with that confidence. So the Old Testament was very clear about the idea that the godly would be raised from the dead. What the Old Testament did not reveal was the concept that there would be a group of people, both Jews and Gentiles, who would be molded into a new body called the church. And that's what we're a part of. And the Old Testament did not reveal that that particular body would be the significant group of people that God dealt with during a time of grace that we're living in now. It also did not reveal that God, the Lord Jesus, would come in the clouds, and according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Jesus would come in the clouds, there would be the trumpet call, and believers would be caught up. The passage we're looking at here in 1 Corinthians 15 looks at that coming of the Lord from the perspective of those who have died, believers that have died. So the big emphasis is on the transformation of believers who have died. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 stresses those who are left behind, those that are still alive at the coming of the Lord. And 1 Thessalonians reminds us that they as well are going to be resurrected from the dead. Both passages deal with both the living believer and the dead believer, the believer that has died physically. Both passages speak to both of those needs. It tells us there's going to be believers that will live until the coming of the Lord. That could be us. And it also talks to us about believers that have died. And the passages tell us about what's going to happen when Jesus Christ returns. There was a big shakeup in the family of God because someone wrote a little pamphlet. But the pamphlet argued that the Lord Jesus was going to come back during the Feast of Tabernacles at a very specific date. The date is now past, so the booklet turned to be false. And somebody just made a good bundle selling a lot of little pamphlets. And it's wrong to set dates. In fact, anyone that does set dates, you can be sure that they're not really walking in the Spirit, they're really not following a true interpretation of the Word of God, because whenever the question of what is the date comes up, for example, in Acts chapter 1, the disciples say, is this the time when you will re restore the kingdom? Is this the time when you will initiate the time of the end? And the Lord Jesus said, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons. In fact, the Lord Jesus himself, even in one passage in the gospel, said that not even the Son of Man knew the exact time, meaning that in his humanity, not even the incarnate Christ would wager that he knew the time when the Father would initiate the end. It's a, it's a passage filled with mystery, because certainly the scripture presents Jesus as being fully God, but I know one thing for sure, if the incarnate Son of God 
was careful not to set dates, was careful not to set times, then certainly I should not. But I want you to notice something about this passage. It says, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. So what did the Apostle Paul think about the coming of the Lord? Which group did the Apostle Paul think he would be in according to 1 Corinthians 15? He thought he would be the living group. Now some people will say, well, that means there's contradictions because in 2 Timothy, the Apostle Paul talks about fighting a good fight, coming to the end of his course. He could see Nero's guillotine or his axe coming down and cutting off his head. The Apostle Paul talks in other passages about the fact that he thinks he'll be among the dead. And so it looks like a conflict. You say, well, here it looks like Paul, under the inspiration of Scripture, is saying he'll be part of the living. And in other passages, he says, well, I think I'm going to go home and be with the Lord in death. Philippians would almost insinuate to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. And in Philippians, Paul is looking with anticipation towards his death. He even talks about it would be better for me from a personal standpoint to go home with the Lord, but I think the Lord wants me to stay. Now, does that mean when the Apostle Paul wrote 1 Corinthians about 13 or 14 years before he wrote those other books that he was in error? No. You see, that's where the belief and the authority of Scripture is so important. Because the Apostle Paul is telling us the way we ought to live. There's a big debate in scholarly circles about the belief in the, of the early church and the coming of the Lord. Because in the early books, there's a strong stress on the coming of the Lord. You read 1 Thessalonians, and you've almost got this sense that the Thessalonians are standing on their tippy toes. They're ready for him to come. And then we have other books that talk about the fact, well, maybe there will be time. Maybe there will be a long distance. As a thousand years is as a day. How do you get all that together? Well, the scholar will say, well, they were just wrong. They were just wrong. They just made a misjudgment. They saw, you know, a scholar wouldn't even hold that they saw the ascension. But you can imagine if you were among the 120 and the disciples that saw the ascension, you saw Jesus come back you know, go up into heaven, and the angel told you that as he went up, so he would come back. He would come back in the clouds. If you saw that happen, it would be easy to live looking like this. You know, like if I saw Jesus go up in a cloud, I think I'd spend my time, I'd go out, well, maybe this could be the day. And I'd start looking, where's the same cloud that took him away? Because if you saw it go in that direction, it would be easy to believe it would come in this direction, wouldn't it? And that's the way the early church lived. That's the way Paul lived. But you know what? That's the way we ought to live. We ought to live expecting the Lord to come back. Now, I want to caution when I say that. As soon as I talk like that, I'm afraid that some of you get plunged into despair. Because most of you have been raised on a good, healthy diet of guilt. You're not giving enough. The Lord's coming back. What would you think if the Lord came back now and you only put that measly little crumb in the offering? And I wish we'd all been ready. You believers, you're not ready. You're not giving enough. You're not attending church enough. You're not getting out there and knocking on doors. Man alive, if the Lord were to come back, what would you change this afternoon? How many of you ever heard preaching like that? Some of you say, man, that's what we need more of around here. You know what's wrong with that kind of preaching? You all get really motivated for about a year. 
And man, you go out and you burn yourself, man. You do everything. You got to be at church every time the door opens because you want to be ready for the Lord to come back. And you know what you're doing? You're trying to please your daddy again, just like when you were a little kid. Some of you had daddies that would never just love you. If you got an A, a 92, why wasn't it a 96? What's wrong with you? You got a 92. You're flubbing the dub. Man alive, you've been goofing around this semester. Don't you know that if you go down three more pale points, you're not even going to get an A? What's that going to do to your record? So the kid goes out and has a nervous breakdown trying to get a 94. You know what I'm talking about. We move into motivation by guilt so quickly. I want you to notice something. The Apostle Paul, first of all, told you you would all be changed. So if you're a born-again believer today, you're going to be changed. And that should make you pretty happy. That should make you really thrilled. You know, this old body, it's, my body's starting to creak a little bit. Man alive, you know, I used to go, be able to just go out and play basketball and run. Now I've got to get down. You have to stretch. Now, you're supposed to do that from the time you're little. But I remember when I was little, I never stretched. Man, you just go out there and play. Now if I don't stretch, I don't play ball for the next two months. Boy, you start to creak. And some of you that are a little older say, man, you think you're creaking. We're going to be changed. Isn't that exciting? You're going to all be changed. And it's not going to be because you earned it. It's not going to be because you worked for it. It's going to be because of a gift, a marvelous gift. We don't know when it's going to be, but the Apostle Paul was excited about it, thinking it might happen when he was living. And my own belief is if the Apostle Paul was standing on tippy toes when he lived his life, then what should I be doing? We've been walking along the edge of a cliff. You see... When we look at history from the perspective of eternity, like I've often shared with you, at the cross of Calvary, you come to the edge of the cliff. And the great victory is won. And the resurrection proves that the war is won. And you start walking along the edge of the cliff of time. And you're always that one step away, one twinkle of an eye away from the big change. Many of you have written to us about the pain of loved ones who are suffering with heart disease or cancer, and some of you have shared about wrestling with crippling arthritis. Here on this planet, the Lord sometimes gives us glimpses of the health we will enjoy in the heavenly realm as He miraculously heals, but other times He allows us to patiently endure through suffering. The hope in this trial is that one day we will all be changed. Do you realize that your own Easter glorification could take place as Christ returns in a twinkling of an eye? I appreciated what Dave said about not focusing on the timing of the rapture and rejoicing in the fact that Christ is coming for His bride. We will conclude the study of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 on our next time together.